Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 23. That's where our passage begins today. Uh, If you are getting used to that, we've been in 1 Corinthians most of the year, but you go through the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you'll come to 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to take a black Bible from the seat rack in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 can be found on page 930 of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take that home. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. And and I say this a lot, but I really do believe it would benefit you to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you today as we walk through this scripture. I think it can help make more sense and you can follow along more clearly. So we're back into the book of 1 Corinthians for the fall. Steve kicked us off last week. We're in a series called A Better Way. You've heard that word a lot this year, a better way to live. And that's because if you're following in your notes, 1 Corinthians shows us a better way to live as God's people in this world. It shows us a better way to live as God's people in the world. And so I actually want us to begin looking at this passage of Scripture by dropping down to verse 31. In this one verse, Paul shares with us the better way. So if you would, would you read with me in the first gray box on your notes, verse 31 as we get started. It says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Let's read that one more time together. It's so important to get our minds around this. Would you read it one more time? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If you're following in your notes, the better way is to do everything for the glory of God. That's the better way. Whatever you do. But glory is this, this word that we use in church sometimes, and I love that Chuck helped start, started painting a picture for us of what glory is, but it's often difficult to define or explain. Some words are that way, right? If I said to you, uh, describe basketball for me, you would say, well, it's a round ball, It's made of leather. It's about 10 inches in diameter. You blow it up with air. You inflate it so it bounces. You can pass it. You can shoot it. You can dribble it. And there's a basket on each end of the floor. And your goal is to get the ball through the basket. And whoever scores the most points wins. And that's why it's called basketball. That's pretty easy to understand. But what if I said define the word glory? That's a little bit harder. And so we can point at some things and we can say, that's it, that's it, that's it. Pictures help us a lot. So I want to show you several pictures that we might be able to agree reflect the glory of God. We're just starting to get an imagination for what this is. So the first picture I'll show you is the Milky Way. I think of Psalm 19 that says, the heavens declare the glory of God. We look at that and we can say, God made that. What about a sunset over central Illinois? Some of the most beautiful sunsets in our country. 
beautiful. Some take vacations to the mountains because they see the glory of God in the mountains. You just know it when you see it. I love to go to the ocean. There's something about standing near the ocean where I sense the presence of the Lord. What about newborn babies? Man, the glory of God in babies. Holy cow. You just look at that and you're like, that's the glory of God. I want to put up one more picture for you. This picture was taken. <laughs> this, this picture was taken on August 12th of this year, entering the bottom of the ninth inning. The Cubs were losing three to nothing to the Washington Nationals, and David Bodie hits a walk-off grand slam, giving the Cubs a four to three win. And this is a picture of him rounding third base and heading home, and his entire team is waiting there to jump on top of him. And Lord knows, it's not the Cubs that reflect the glory of God. But I want to, I want, I. I, I read a quote, I read a quote about this picture that I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's it. Somebody said, when I look at that picture, that's what I think heaven's going to be like. I'm coming home and my teammates and the saints are waiting for me and it is going to be a celebration. I look at that and I'm like, yes, that's the glory of God. And so even... The Chicago Cubs can glorify God. <laughs> but since we're a people of words, we're a people of words, I want to take a shot at giving some words to help us understand the word glory more fully. And so if you're following in your notes, glory is the beauty, the brightness. It usually involves light. When the angels show up, when Jesus is born, they say, glory to God in the highest, shining, brilliant light. So it involves beauty, brightness, the greatness, and the presence of the Lord. Those are words for glory. The pictures we looked at point to all those things, the beauty of the Lord, the brightness of the Lord, the greatness of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. And if you're following your notes, but the glory of God is most revealed in his son, Jesus. If we want to know what the glory of God is, we look to Jesus in scripture. I want to share three scriptures with you that do that for us. The first is John 1.14. The word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And then would you read with me Hebrews 1.3? This may be the best verse in scripture that captures this idea. Would you read this? It says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so in Jesus, we see the beauty and the brightness and the greatness and the presence of God. Jesus perfectly glorified God in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And like the scripture we just read, whether he ate or whether he drank, whatever he did, he did it all for the glory of God. 
So that helps us understand what glory is a little bit better, but it makes me want to know what it means in the Bible when we're commanded to glorify something. Like our verse today, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. What in the world does that mean? And so if you're following in your notes, the, the best definition that I've heard, and there's, there's multiple definitions of this. Some, some would use the words to honor, to give weight to, to exalt, to praise, and all those are accurate. But the best defin- definition that has helped me the most, if you're following in your notes, is that to glorify something is to light something up brilliantly. It's to light something up brilliantly. Kent Hughes is a pastor and author. He says this, The shape of our lives is meant to make the beauty of God light up brilliantly to those around us. I'm going to read that one more time. The shape of our lives, the purpose of our lives is meant, the shape of our lives is meant to make the beauty of God light up brilliantly to those around us. And that's what Jesus did. And the reason that's the shape of our lives, if you're following in your notes, is because we were created to be image bearers of God. We were created to be image bearers. Just like Jesus imaged God perfectly, we're to point people to the beauty and the brightness and the greatness and the presence of the Lord. We were made to know, live in, and live for God's glory. We're told this from the very beginning. The first chapter of the Bible takes us here. In Genesis 1, verse 27, we read, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, I just want to leave that scripture up for just a moment. I've read that scripture hundreds of times. Hundreds. And the Lord spoke to me this week as I was studying this, and he said, Brian, don't, don't just read over that and say, yeah, that, that's really cool. That's, that's good to know. Friends, we need to pause and understand that the creator of everything, the creator of the universe who sustains all things and is in control of every breath we take, he created you in his image so that you could reflect his image for other people to see and you could shine his light brilliantly. And I I paused on that and I thought to myself, that is a great privilege. It's a huge responsibility and it's a high calling, but that's who we are created in the image of God. I want you to think of it as a mirror right? It's a mirror. God created us to be mirrors to reflect his light so we can shine his light. But what's happened is we've all gone our own way. We all shine the light on ourselves or we shine it on other things and we glorify our own desires instead of shining the light on God. And one of the tragic results of sin, one of the tragic results is that we no longer properly image God. The reflection is cracked and it's distorted. The image is distorted. But the glorious truth of the good news, it's one of the reasons we gather every Sunday morning. We want to proclaim this each time we meet, that restoration is possible through Jesus. When we turn from our sin, and we turn to Jesus, and and trust in what he accomplished on the cross, 
Our sins are forgiven and we are made right with God now and forever. And our lives can once again, this is what happens. Our lives can once again shine the light of Christ for other people to see. And this is so important, so important, because if you're following in your notes, knowing who we are, knowing who we are, image bearers, impacts the decisions we make. Our identity impacts the decisions we make. If we step into this calling and into this identity, it can change everything. If we lived lives in that whatever we did, we did to the glory of God because we're image bearers whose purpose is to shine the light of God for others to see. If we live into that, it could change our families, our marriages, our parenting, schools, workplaces, sports fields, our church, our community. It could change everything. But this surfaces a question for me. Yes, we know that. We know that's our purpose. We know that's who we are as followers of Jesus. But how do we know if the decisions we're making and what we're doing is for the glory of God? Because sometimes in life, there's gray areas. Not everything is black and white. We've talked about that a lot during this series. What do we do in those situations to ensure that we are making decisions that glorify God, that shine the light on him? Some examples. How do we approach alcohol? Should we get tattoos? What clothes are appropriate to wear? Is that music okay to listen to? What about that television show or that film? How do I spend my free time? How do I spend my money? Is it okay to participate in Halloween? Should I date this person? I mean, how do we determine if our decisions glorify God? A decision that my wife and I have wrestled with for a long time was whether or not to let our kids read Harry Potter. The reason I know this is a gray issue is because perhaps half of you are thinking to yourself, I can't believe you would allow your kid to read Harry Potter. And half of you might be thinking to yourself, you may be one of the most prudish parents I've ever met because your kid hasn't been able to read Harry Potter. But our 12-year-old has been asking and asking about this. And the reason we take this so seriously is because we do believe spiritual warfare is real. And we do believe there is real dark magic in this world that we should have nothing to do with. And so these filters we're going to talk about today were helpful in figuring out the decision we could make and if it could glorify God. And we all have questions like this. We all are a little confused sometimes. And what Paul does brilliantly in these verses is he gives us filters to help us determine whether the decision we're about to make glorifies God. So before we dig into verse 23, I want to give you two guiding principles, just big umbrella principles that aren't explicitly in the text, two filters that we don't see in the text, but they are throughout scripture and they are filters for our decision-making. The first filter, if you're following in your notes, is the question, is it biblical? Is it biblical? The question we always need to ask first is what does the Bible say about that? If the Bible says not to do something, have an affair, get drunk, sex before marriage, covet what someone else wants, then it's off limits. And let me repeat what Steve said last week. This was so helpful to me. God doesn't give us stop signs because he's a killjoy. He actually knows how life can go best. So as image bearers, we are to live according to God's word in a way that shines the light on him. And to do that, we continually ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about that? 
The second filter that we ask in our decision-making, is it legal? Is it legal? We need to honor the authority that is over us. Not everything is legal. Listen, you can't drink and drive, and when the cop pulls you over, you roll down the window and you're like, dude, I'm free in Christ. Free in Christ, man. No, you're not. That is against the law, and it does not glorify God. What about, you can't rob a bank, law enforcement shows up, and you say, free in Christ to this money. Free in Christ. Kids, if you're in the room, your parents ask you to clean your room, you can't say, hey, mom and dad, I'm free in Christ. Don't need to do it. No, you're not. You're, you're, you're not. God has put your parents over you in a place of authority. And as followers of Jesus, a big way we glorify God is by being law-abiding citizens and honoring his commands. So these first two big umbrella filters, they take a whole bunch of things and it automatically eradicates them. Is it biblical and is it legal? If the answer is no, we have our answer. It will not glorify God. But what if it's an issue that's a gray issue and the Bible doesn't speak to it specifically and it's legal? This is where we start in verse 23 today. Would you read this with me in the second gray box on your notes? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. The Corinthians had some mantras, and some of them were, we can do anything we want. We're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want to do. But the Corinthians weren't referring to holy living. They were trying to justify ungodly living. I have the right to do anything. We see that two times here. I have the right to do anything. And up to that, I believe Paul would say, you know what? You do. You're free in Christ. You don't have to obey the 600 plus laws found in the Old Testament. Jesus has set you free from those laws. But, and we see these words, not everything is beneficial for you. Other translations say, not everything is profitable. Not everything is helpful or constructive. Not everything is good for you. And that's the third filter we use to determine whether we can glorify God with our decision. The third question is, is it constructive or beneficial? Is it beneficial to watch that show or listen to that band or hang out with those friends? Is what I'm about to say and how I'm going to say it constructive to building someone else up? One pastor said this about this verse. He says, what these words imply is that there's a difference between things that are sinful and things that are harmful. For example, is it a sin to smoke cigarettes? No, it's not. The Bible doesn't say anything about cigarettes, so you are free in Christ to smoke. I could take you to 1 Corinthians 6, which says treat your body like a temple, and I think I could make an argument of how that potentially is a sin, but explicitly the Bible does not talk about cigarettes. Is it legal? Yes. If you're 21 in Illinois, you can buy and smoke cigarettes. So we go to the third question, the third filter, is it constructive or beneficial? No. They actually write that on the box. <laughs> it's not at all. And so the point here is just because it's not forbidden in the Bible and just because it's legal doesn't make it constructive or beneficial. Here's another one. Kids and screen time. 
I'm in this with you. I got a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 3-year-old, and they would watch screens as much as I allow them. Does the Bible say don't do it? I don't think so. Is it legal? Yes. But it's not beneficial or constructive, and if we're not careful, it can have damaging effects on our kids' brains, and they can't unsee some of the things they see. And if something's not constructive or beneficial, here's the point Paul's making. If something's not constructive or beneficial, then it's really hard to make a case that the decision we're making is going to glorify God. It's really hard to shine the light on him for others to see if it's not constructive or beneficial. By far, this was the hardest of the filters for Sarah and me as we made the Harry Potter decision. We wanted to be very careful because if we just let the boys read these books, it wouldn't necessarily be constructive or beneficial for them. It could scare them. It could put things in their mind. They could be dabbling in things that we wouldn't want them dabbling in. But we decided it's not unbiblical to read really good fiction books. It's legal to read these books. And if we read them with them, we can help them distinguish between light and dark, good and evil, point them to Jesus, tell them what is real and not real, and we can do this in a way that glorifies God and is constructive and is beneficial. But it's up to the parent and up to their discernment. But we've got to be able to answer the question, can we do this in a constructive or beneficial way? If the answer is no, then we have our answer. So those first three questions are personal questions. We each need to wrestle with those. But Paul wants to broaden the application from personal to corporate, and that's why he continues in verse 24. Would you read this in the third gray box in your notes? He says, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So quick review. When we're faced with a decision, we first ask what the Bible says about it. If it's not forbidden in Scripture, we ask, is it legal? If it's legal, we move on to ask, is it profitable or beneficial or constructive? If the answer is no, we have our answer. If the answer is yes or maybe, then we can move on to this next filter, which is, if you're following in your notes, does it build others up in the faith? Does it build others up in their faith? Because what Paul wants to do is be crystal clear that giving glory to God is not simply vertical, but also horizontal. It's not just vertical, it's horizontal. The way we relate to others impacts how and if we glorify God. Our decisions should not be based just on ourselves, but the fact we are part of a family of believers. And if you'd like some practical examples or here in detail— these decisions that we might need to forego to build others up, I want to encourage you to go online from May of this year in chapters 8 and 9. There was a series of messages about foregoing our freedoms for the good of others. That might really help you. But if we have a decision to make and someone's weak in an area, if someone's tempted, are we willing to give up our freedoms for their sake, for the good of others? Forcing Jesus, uh, Jesus, when we follow him, we have to ask this question. Is my decision building up the body of Christ? We have to ask this question. This question alone could have a major impact on our decisions. Is what I'm about to say going to build up the body of Christ? A brother or sister, is my action going to build up the body of Christ? 
such an important question. So Paul gives us four filters, and then in verses 25 to 30, he uses some examples that he's used repeatedly in chapters 8 to 10. And he's going to give three examples of how to process if a decision is for the glory of God. If you're following along in your Bibles, I'm going to read verse 25. Paul says, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Verse 25, we've talked about this before. The meat market was a really big deal for the Corinthians because some of the meat sold there had been sacrificed to idols at the pagan temples in Corinth, and they, were have no, they should have nothing to do with that. But it would have been very difficult to tell what meat was sacrificed to idols and what meat came in from the country. So Paul says, go ahead, have a clear conscience about this. Eat anything that's sold in the market without asking any questions, enjoy the provision of the Lord. He even quotes Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In this case, they're not going against the Bible. What they're doing is legal. It's beneficial and constructive to eat, and they do not need to worry about offending others by purchasing meat from the market. They can do this for the glory of God. Then he gives a second example, beginning in verse 27, and he says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, Eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. In this example, Paul says you're invited to a meal at a non-Christian's house. This is a gray area. Paul says if you want to go, go. And if you choose to go, then eat the good food they serve you. Hang out with them. Be their friend. Enter into conversations. Answer their questions. Be as loving, as gracious, as compassionate as you possibly can. And by the way, you don't need to ask them if this meat has been sacrificed to demons. Just enjoy it. But notice Paul uses the words, if you want to go, which infers that not all of us would choose to go. And that's okay. If you don't want to go, then don't go. And if you want to go, then go. And this, this is so important. All of us are different. And we must pay attention to our conscience and what the Holy Spirit says across the ticker of our mind, especially in these gray areas. And in a case like this, you can make either decision for the glory of God. Just like the decision to read Harry Potter, there's not a right or a wrong. It's up to you and your conscience and your discernment. Some will think it's fine to go to the dinner party, and some will think it's not okay. And that's okay. And then Paul gives a third and final example, beginning in verse 28. He says, But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice— then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So Paul is now addressing the folks who said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to this dinner, but they get to the dinner, and the host of the dinner says, this meat has been sacrificed to an idol, and they want you to participate in the worship of something other than Jesus. Paul says, you have to say no. You have to say no. It's a violation of Scripture. But then he gives another reason. I find it interesting in verse 29 that he says, you're doing this, you're making this decision for the other person's conscience. Not yours. 
And this brings us to the fifth filter in the decision-making of whether this will glorify God or not. The fifth filter is how will my decision affect non-Christians? How will my decision affect non-Christians? Because the decisions we make can either shine the light on God or our decisions can actually be a detriment to the gospel. And in this case, by not participating, the Corinthians would show this non-believer they follow Jesus, it's important to them, and by not participating, they will shine the light on God. There's this famous quote, some of you have probably heard it. It says, be careful how you live, you may be the only Bible some people ever read. When we're hanging out with our non-Christian friends, we are thinking, however I act, whatever I say, wherever we go, what we drink, the language we use, the jokes we tell, we want to do everything to be an image bearer of Christ so we might have the opportunity to shine the light of Christ for those people to see. That's our priority. So we'll give up the freedoms that we need to give up. We'll be flexible, but we won't sin because that wouldn't shine the light on God. So let me ask you, are we living our lives in such a way that people would know we're following Jesus? The actions we take, the words we use, the decisions we make, the posture of humility we assume. Do we look like Jesus? Are we image bearers of the one who created us? that shine the light of God for other people to see? Or what would people see when they look at us? Really important question. And this is where it's difficult, and it takes boldness and courage to stand up for Jesus. It's what the Corinthians were facing in Corinth in the first century. It's what we're facing today. Are we willing to look different and make the difficult decision so we can shine the brilliant light of Christ for other people to see? And then continuing in verse 32 and 33, Paul goes on. He says, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. This is so similar to the fourth filter that I didn't include it on its own, but it's just another reminder that we are to have an other-centered focus on God. And the motivation for all of this, if you look in verse 33 in your Bibles, the motivation, the one thing that matters to us, it mattered to Paul, is whether people would be saved. That they would meet Jesus, follow him, and worship him, and they would see that in us. That's the motivation. We're going to keep going into chapter 11, verse 1 today. Numbers were not part of the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. In fact, chapters and verses weren't added to the Bible until the year 1551. And that's why today we're going to go into chapter 11 because Paul continues this train of thought and concludes this section by pointing to our example in glorifying God. Would you read this with me in the fourth gray box in your notes? Paul writes, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Because the glory of God is most revealed in the life of Jesus, Paul's life was consumed with becoming more and more like Jesus. And the question we need to ask ourselves, if you're following in your notes, could we say to others, follow me as I follow the example of Christ? 
Could we say that? What would, what would the people who we disciple look like if we said that? What would our church look like if we said, follow me the way I follow Christ? What would they look like? And I'm not talking about perfection here. We are going to mess up on this every day of our lives. But what's the trajectory we're taking? What are we pursuing in life? Are we becoming more and more like Jesus? Have you ever noticed that the closer an object is to the light, the brighter it shines? Have you ever noticed that? The closer an object is to the light, the brighter it shines. The closer we stand to light, the brighter we become. And if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of the glory of God, then if we spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to become like Jesus, our lives can shine brighter. The more we look like Christ and think like Christ, the more we love Christ and the more he's formed in us, the more God can be glorified through us. And that's why my prayer this morning, I've been praying this all week, is that we could catch this paradigm shift that is possible. I, I pray we could begin living like this more and more every day, that we would glorify God in our lives and the decisions we make in increasing ways. Our lives are the canvas God wants to use in our practice of becoming more like Jesus, and that's because everything in our life is an opportunity to glorify God. Have you thought about that? Every moment of every day is an opportunity to glorify God. We will make decisions that either honor and glorify God or make decisions that dishonor and do not glorify him. Every, every day, everything is an opportunity to reflect the brilliant light of Christ. Do you teach here? Are you a teacher? Homeschool or public school, private school? Do you fix tires? Do you serve fast food, study algebra, clean homes. All these can be done to the glory of God. When you're loading the dishwasher, you're doing the laundry, cleaning the bathroom, changing diapers, making the bed, parenting, grandparenting, you're an engineer, you own your own business, you work for the state, or you serve others in the healthcare field. Whatever you do, what if you considered, what if you went into that job and considered it a service to the Lord and did it for the glory of God so others could see God shine through you. If you play a sport, if you're in this room and you play a sport, do it for the glory of God. I love that two of our ministry partners, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Football, they teach coaches and students that they can compete at the highest level for the glory of God. Whether it's the diamond, court, field, they can shine the light of Christ in the way they participate. We can glorify God in tough times, medical diagnoses, financial troubles, parent-child issues. We can glorify God in the good times. And I actually think it's sometimes harder to glorify God in the good times and remember he's the giver of all good things because I just want to shine the light on me during those times. And we need to remember that when we get the promotion or land the sales deal or move into our dream house or we get a raise, we can do those things for the glory of God in all of our decisions. When it's difficult to determine what's right and wrong or if there is no right or wrong in a decision, we have the opportunity to glorify God because all of life is an opportunity to glorify God. 
And so I want us to think about this question together as we close this morning. If you're following in your notes, what is my whatever you do? What is it? What is your whatever you do? What part of your life is God speaking to you about right now in this room that he wants you to use to shine the light on him? Where can you start today? Ultimately, listen, ultimately, we want all of our lives to glorify God. We don't want to silo our lives into church and school and home and marriage. We want all of our lives to glorify God, but it takes practice and training to become a habit. And so where today would he want you to start paying attention? I can do that for the glory of God. For some of you, you have it. It, it, it's come to you over the last half an hour. And for some of you, I want to encourage you during these next few moments, ask him where it is. He'll, he'll reveal it to you. And give that to him. Just tell him, I want to glorify you in this, God. I don't know how, but I want to. Help me. And we want to give you just a couple minutes. I'm going to give this gift of quiet. What is your whatever you do? Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.